let them in, don't let them see Be the good girl you always have to be Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's hard to believe that we still move the clocks back and forth in 2023, but here we are sticking with the status quo and doing it again. Welcome to shorter days for the next few months. But you know what they say, if you can't beat them, join them. So personally, I use this time to embrace nesting and pull out my big fuzzy blankets and light candles throughout the house. But I want to know how you deal with the dark. I'm looking for your input over on the What She Said Talk Facebook page today, so hop on over after today's show and share your best tips with everyone. Perhaps if we put our heads together, we'll just slide right by the seasonal depression this year. But first, here's what's coming up in today's show. In light of the recent tragic shooting in Sault Ste. Marie, where intimate partner violence escalated to a horrifying conclusion, I am joined by Paulette Sr., CEO and President of the Canadian Women's Foundation, to move beyond thoughts and prayers to discuss real solutions and actions needed to address the widespread problem of intimate partner violence in Canada. New material out of Hollywood is pretty slim right now, so thankfully we have Anne Brody on the case, finding the best entertainment she can to keep us amused while we're snuggled under our big blankets. This week, we take a look at The Hands That Bind, which explores intense relationships between families and neighbors and comes to the conclusion that farming may no longer be a worthwhile way to live. Plus, we chat about two documentaries that will blow your mind beyond utopia and anything for fame. In partnership with Caltire, we're diving into a topic that's top of mind for many Canadians as we transition from fall to winter, ensuring our vehicles are winter ready. With snowy conditions just around the corner, if not already here in some parts of Canada, it's essential to be prepared, especially when it comes to our cars. Joining me today is a familiar voice. Tiffany Woodley, a specialist from Cal Tire, joins me to share some invaluable tips to ensure our cars are equipped this season and we're safe on the roads. Over the next few weeks, I aim to draw your attention to great Canadian companies that have amazing products and give back in a really meaningful way. Today, I'm joined by Jordan Britton from Warm Social Coats. As the cold weather approaches, we're reminded of the importance of staying warm and cozy, but for many, a warm winter coat is out of reach. Jordan's company is doing incredible work to ensure that everyone has access to warm clothing, no matter their financial situation. Finally, being proactive about managing our anxiety is the name of the game anymore, but knowing what to try can be overwhelming. I'm joined by Sharon DeVellis, who routinely gives different health trends a try to assess if they really work. Today, Sharon joins me to discuss cold water plunges, Wim Hof breathing, and floating, so we can find out if these practices are worth incorporating into our routines. So whether you're seeking solutions to societal issues, the best in entertainment, or practical winter readiness tips, What She Said has got you covered this week. Tune in and join the conversation right here on 105.9 The Region. Cold never bothered me anyway And you can feel the hole inside of you With money, drugs, and cars I'm so glad I never, ever had a 
In light of the recent tragic shooting in Sault Ste. Marie, where intimate partner violence escalated to a horrifying conclusion, I am joined today by Paulette Sr., CEO and President of the Canadian Women's Foundation. Today, we're going to aim to move beyond the standard thoughts and prayers that often follow these incidents and instead delve into the real solutions and actions needed to address the widespread problem of intimate partner violence. Welcome to the show, Paulette. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Candice. And thank you for your opening comments around moving beyond the thoughts and priors, because I, I think time for that is over. And what exactly we need is what you said. It's it's really what are some of the actions that can be taken to prevent this going forward? Absolutely. It's just this exhausting cycle of violence and then, you know, thoughts and prayers, and then it goes away until the next time. Ooh. So I really do want to move beyond that. So can you help us understand the scale of intimate partner violence in Canada? Well, I think it is much more common than some of us want to admit or or that most of us even know. Um, we know that one in four women have experienced some form of intimate partner violence in their lifetimes. So that's 40%. And, and why we say we know, because it's usually through means of reporting or other ways of finding out that we know this. We also know that some women are even at higher risk than others. So women who have less power, less access to supports due to additional um, issues around discrimination or barriers they may experience. So for example, women with disabilities um, is also part of the issue. So not just about their gender, but about their intersecting realities that they live with. Um, Black women, um, racialized women, um, as, as well as those who who identify um, with issues around homelessness or being underhoused, uh, women who are in remote rural or northern communities. So all of those issues come into play. And then, Kenneth, we also know that uh, it can ha- take many forms uh, in, t- in, in terms of relationships. Uh, it can happen within a marriage or common law or dating relationship, uh, that it can also occur regardless of the gender or sexual orientation of the partners, and often we don't think about that. Um, it can happen at any time during relationship, um, whether that be at the beginning um, or even um, after it has ended. Uh, so that's that tells you about the, the long tail that it can have. And it can also happen whether or not partners live together or are sexually intimate uh, with one another. Um, so it's really about the relationship. And uh, it can take physical and emotional forms as well. We've heard of issues around, um, you know, control, uh, control of finances. Uh, it can be name calling, could be hitting and pushing or blocking. It could be stalking behavior, for example, uh, as serious as rape and sexual assault. So all of these forms it can take. So that's why I think it's important to know that intimate partner violence can have a terrible and traumatizing long-term impact uh, on those who are the victims or survivors of it, as well as on the children who are involved, who themselves become victims and survivors of of, um, uh, of intimate partner violence. And we know also, Candice, that there have been many reports um, that have talked about this, whether it's about the Kenyan Center for Justice and Commuter Safety um, Stats Can report that came out in 2021, 
that identified that women disproportionately experience the most severe forms of IPV. Uh, because sometimes we get pushed back and say it's not just women. But the stats now right. come out and says that this this is the most uh that women experience the most severe forms, uh being um choking, um, being assaulted or threatened with a weapon, or being sexually assaulted. And then another part of that, another report that speaks to this is a Canadian Femicide Observatory for, for Justice and Accountability. They come out with a report in 2022 um, to learn that every 48 hours, one woman or girl is violently killed primarily by men. Every 48 hours. And I've been in this field for a long time. And we used to say every six days, and now we're saying every 48 hours. It feels like a gut punch. That's that's uh, incredibly disturbing. And this case in St. Marie is a real stark reminder of how it can escalate to these really fatal outcomes. So if, if I mean, every 48 hours, that's just, that's just going to sit with me for a long time now when I think about that. But are there warning signs that the situation is could be escalating for other people who may, may be observing this? Uh, absolutely. We've seen that in studies over the decades in terms of uh, people who witness. Um, uh, so, And since intimate partner abuse is often related to the abuser's need to maintain power and control, because we don't really think of it that way, but it really is that basic, mm-hmm. that there are many... Um, ways that escalations uh, related to shifts in that dynamic. Um, and so there's a reaction to that, that shift, right? Because if, if, uh, if, they, if they sense that their power and control are loosening, then, then it's a point at which um, EP, IPV can escalate. So we know, for example, that the most dangerous time is often when someone chooses to leave the abusive relationship. And this is why it's so important that we raise awareness about the many barriers that women face to leaving these relationships and the supports that are needed for them to be able to do that successfully and safely for themselves and their children once they have been able to leave the relationship. When I used to do this work in terms of frontline, uh, the many, many folks are doing this work frontline even today, you know, one of the, the basic things that you do is you come up with a plan. Right. What what is what is the plan? What is a plan that will keep you safe, keep your loved ones safe when you choose to leave? And that's a very important point, because then um, that's when, as you talk about uh, others being 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 pulled into this becomes part of the problem. And that's why we have to support the entire life cycle of those who are moving out of violence. We have to create a whole ecosystem for their safety and for their independence, um, as well as for their success after all of this. And so we know that lives actually depend on better resourced and more accessible services that would help people leave violent situations and keep them safe once, once they're able to leave. This is a big topic and we don't have enough time to go deeply, deeply into it. But what are some of the systemic changes that need to happen to protect those at risk of intimate partner violence? Uh, that's such a critical question. And, you know, at the Care Women's Foundation, we we do a lot of support of the frontline services, the immediate services um, uh, for those who are addressing gender-based violence in communities. But we also know it's important that uh, there are systemic changes that need to be made. 
um, as well. So, so one of them is that we need to treat the shelters and the services and the programs that support survivors of intimate partner violence as essential services. And we saw that this particular term came about uh, during the pandemic, where we talked about uh, essential workers during the pandemic. But those who are doing this frontline work have always been essential. They've always provided life-saving services, and they need to be funded and resourced in the same way that we treat other services that are essential to community and public safety. So um, the Cain Women's Foundation has been advocating for this for many, many years, as I said, particularly during the pandemic, when these services were facing higher costs and higher demand. So uh, you may have heard about the spike during the pandemic. And and so one of the immediate responses by these really responsive shelters was to look at not just how they could keep women safe during that time, because spacing, of course, in a shelter becomes even more critical during the pandemic, but also where else can they actually support women to stay? And so quite a few of them uh, looked at issues around and worked to support women in hotels and other spaces where they know they'd be safe. So we also need to continue supporting policy efforts like the National Action Plan Gender-Based Violence and ensure that it's being rolled out inclusively and effectively and that these all of these responses need to be resourced. Okay, we're going we're to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be right back with Paulette Senior from the Canadian Women's Foundation uh, to discuss this very real problem of intimate partner violence. You should be More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Okay, we're back with Paulette Senior from the Canadian Women's Foundation. We're discussing intimate partner violence. And Pauline, is there a role that communities and individuals can play in preventing intimate partner violence and supporting survivors? Absolutely. And and I think it's been the fear for, for a very long time because uh, on uh, on a couple levels. One one is is that we've we've um uh, we've seen these issues and particularly intimate partner violence occur in a society where it's been um, an issue for the home. It's been private. It's been something you don't talk about. It's been something that you are hush-hush about. And and we've been calling for that particular way of responding to be, to be demolished, really, uh, and to be able to mm-hmm. shift the culture around gender-based violence from one of stigma and silence to one that is about safety and support. And that's the cultural shift I think that we need to have. And so one of the things that we did during the pandemic continue to do now, of course, we the 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 one-handed signal that we created during the pandemic, the the signal for help, um, was was a critical one, I think, for in many circumstances when folks found themselves at home, some of whom who were at risk were at greater risk because of being uh, bound with their abusers 24-7, for example. So the signal for help was really a one-handed gesture that we created that silently indicates someone would like to be checked in on safely. And in 
Uh, we launched that in April of 2020 in response to the spike that we saw. Um, and we know it's being, you know, went viral, it's being used all over the, the world in, in ways that people deem it necessary. Um, uh, but also we, we move from that to talking about the signal for help responder, right? So it's so because a lot of folks will see someone being abused, will hear it and don't know what to do. So what we did was really look at, uh, you know, helping people to know what to do when they see this happening. Um, and, and we also do um, surveys, right? So we know that two thirds of us in Canada know a woman who has experienced um, some form of abuse, but we also know that most of us are not confident. In fact, only one in six of us in Canada are confident we know what to do. So that's a problem because it creates a gap. So we don't want people to wait for them, to, you know, to to somehow magically become confident. We we want folks to be able to learn what are some of the things you need to do. And so if you see the signal, we know a signal is only as good as folks who know how to use it. So when you see it, what do you do? Well, that's what the signalresponder.ca work is about to encourage people to log on, to get free learning resources. And it, there, there's also a downloadable guide and online course to help people know what to do. And so far, since we launched it, we've had about 60,000 people sign up to take the course, which incredible. is is exactly yeah. that. It is incredible. Um, I'm, I'm very inspired by that. And so it's tools like these and others that are really helping to let the person um, who is facing abuse uh, take the lead. It's not about you taking over from them. It's empowering them to be able to direct you as to what is it that they need and when. And some may wish to just talk, for example, and some may wish to know of the local support services in their community. Not all want the authorities to get involved and not all are able to leave the abusive situation at that exact moment. So there, but there, there's a critical role that we all can play in being supportive, playing that supportive role uh, by following the guidance of the learning resources which we provide. So, uh, supportive, being supportive, uh, and being uh, and providing sort of a stigma-free um, communication, I think, is goes a long way, as well as helpful local resources and services that can be provided throughout the country. So um, I encourage folks to go to signalresponder.ca to learn to learn more and what actions that they can take. And my last question for you then is, is, you know, we talk about these things whenever there's a tragic incident, like what happened in Sault Ste. Marie, and it's, it's all over the place. It's a big focus. What, we, what can we do, though, to bring this to the forefront all the time so that we're addressing it before it happens? And and that's at the, at the top of our discussion. I talked about the importance of prevention, um, because we we find that we don't necessarily focus there as much as we should. And and it is it is so important. And there are things that we can do that uh, have long term impacts. Um, so, for example, you can never doubt the power of education. So we support. Um, programs across the country, uh, particular, particular for young people across the gender spectrum, to support them in 
being able to learn what does a healthy relationship look like? What are some of the indicators of a healthy relationship? While also being able to learn what are some of the indicators of an unhealthy relationship, right? So for them to be able to spot it, so they understand, um, you know, when, when something could actually go wrong, and understand issues around power and control and coerciveness. Uh, these are really good indicators that that something could go off the rails, and that they need to be able to choose and choose powerfully about the kind of relationships that they're entering into. Um, and it's not just about romantic relationships; it's about all relationships. You know, so being able to um, for them to be educated about that and for that, for this kind of education to be with them for life so that they're doing that. But we also need to implement the ongoing recommendations, whether from the StatsCan report that I talk about, from, uh, from the report that was done much earlier this year uh, regarding homicides and femicides, um, the Eva Renfrew, Renfrew um, counter report that we were able to support uh, the legal experts to participate in and, and the consultations that happened around that. Declaring that this is an epidemic is one of those critical pieces that need to happen. We're, we know that it's happening in various municipalities and and provinces around the country. Ontario is yet to get there. In fact, they declined to do that. And I think that that is, um, that is a lost opportunity and could possibly be causing lives. And so if they're able to declare that this is an epidemic, it can then marshal funding um, uh, that will support intervention prevention services and, and make sure that decision makers are responding to it in the right way. There is no lack of information. There's no lack of uh, recommendations about what to do from experts who've been doing this work, whether it's shelters, crisis lines, um, healthy relationships programs, like I mentioned, that we all know what the, what, what's needed. Um, and it's not just for the short term. It needs to be, as I said, uh, so a cultural shift in terms of the stigma and, and eliminating that stigma and looking to a cultural shift in terms of safety and support. Paulette, I really don't like the circumstances that you joined me today, but I am always glad when you're here, uh, you share great mm-hmm. information. Uh, women can find out more. Where can they go? We encourage them to uh, go to our website, um, canadianwoman.org. Uh, to learn more and to find out about uh, how they can access services. There are there are shelters um, right across this country that can do that. We I would also recommend uh, Women Shelters Canada um, is also another organization under which um, most of the shelters are are are, um, are are exist or and can be located. Um, but please, uh, if 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 folks need more information, just reach out to us at uh, CanadianWoman.org, and we'll be able to direct you to services within your community. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining okay. me today, Paulette. Thank thank you for having me, Candice. It's appreciated.
And Brody is back with Saturday Night at the Movies. And last week, things were a little slow. How are things looking this week, Anne? Slow. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, you've got a few things, right? You did did find things. Yes. We have, uh, we're starting with an award winner, um, The Hands That Bind. And it's set on a farm um, in Alberta. Uh, and you see the the travails of farmers these days, you know, especially individually owned farms, not the corporate farms, how they really struggle and they work so hard and they work until they're elderly. And it's it's a hard lifestyle. And, you know, will your children take it on and, and do it? Are they interested? What happens? Uh, so it's about a, a, a man and his father trying their darndest to get this farm to continue. And it's been in the family for generations. And then, uh, oh no, sorry, it's not his son. It's his hired hand who might as well be his son. They're very close and he lives on the on a cabin there with his family. Um, but the son, the real son shows up and he's a total wastrel. And of course, he he wants the farm all of a sudden, so which he'd never wanted. Um and his influence is so dark and so uh, maniacal that it it upsets the entire community. And it's just a really interesting story about something like a son returning home can destroy a gener- generations of work. Um, and Bruce Dern's actually in this. He appears as kind of a Greek chorus character, sort of explaining and talking over with the hired man, just what's going on. But it's a really good psychological study and a look at uh, the farm scene today. It looks it looks interesting. Very dark, I found. Um, Very dark. Oh, and there's a scene where a cow is found up in a tree, like dead. And there's strange lights that are happening, and they're never explained. But yeah, it's interesting. And that and- is in theaters or... In theaters, yes. In theaters. Excellent. Okay. The one that grabbed my attention this week, actually, there were two that grabbed my attention this week. The first one, Beyond Utopia, looks fascinating. Oh, my word. It is an eye opener. We don't see much footage from inside North Korea, um, except for those really meticulous, planned, expensive parades and, and military shows with the machinery and everything. So this is uh, a woman who went inside and got footage and she got people inside to use flip phones to get footage. And the what we see is breathtaking. Uh, police executing people just on the street for the slightest in, infraction. Widespread homelessness, poverty, starvation. Uh, and they're told that it's utopia. Um, and... They live in constant fear. Children are taught at a very young age to do everything right, according to the book, because they're they're trained to fear being executed on the spot. There's no mercy given whatsoever. Um, so, you know, it's it's pretty interesting. And it follows this group of brokers who help people defect from North Korea. And that means that this one family, five people, including an 80-year-old grandmother, half has to walk from North Korea across the Chinese border and down through 3,000 miles to Thailand for, for freedom. It's just appalling. They can't believe what society looks like in, Thai, in 
there. It's they're overwhelmed. But and there's another woman who's waiting for her son to come and he never shows up. He was she wasn't told he was tortured to death. It's just so sad that a place like this exists. It is hard to believe, actually, in 2023 that a place like that does exist. Uh, so it looks fascinating. And as they say, you know, this footage is is raw. It's not recreations. And we never get to see that. So this is quite a fascinating documentary. And that is on, is that on Netflix? It's, no, it's in theaters. I just oh, want to theaters. add one, one thing that I sound, found very dangerous and odd. They have high rises everywhere where people live. They don't use gas heat. People build fires in their apartments. Wow. It's all wood fired heat. It's just so disturbing. Crazy. All right. One one more crazy one. Um, anything for fame. <laughs> now, you'd know more about this than I would because you're a social influencer. But it's about a certain generation of social influencers who uh, will basically do anything for a hit for money. Mm-hmm. Um, a girl who has uh, sex parties. I mean, pfft sex parties, Um, a guy who jumps off high buildings and bridges, including the Golden Gate, all illegal, Uh, people who hurt themselves. There's a guy who, during store opening hours, goes through and hand destroys a store because no one will stop him. And they get rich off of this. Like, how is this? How has this come to be? And, and, you know, they're so, they need money and they make money by the number of posts. So they can never just walk away from it. They can't just say, well, I'm going on holiday. They have to keep coming up with these weird things to do. Well, that's the thing about it. It's a trap, right? When it becomes a way of making money, you have to keep getting views. And if you don't get views, you don't get money. So eventually what happens, my experience is being in this long enough is that People eventually jump the shark because they're so consumed yes. with being in front of viewers all the time that they jump the shark and they go way too far. And that is what we're seeing every single day in social media. And it scares me to death because people are making millions of dollars, not just on these crazy stunts, but on spreading false information because they're getting paid money for it. Oh my word. Oh so my yeah, word. it's a we're on a slippery slope here. It's very scary. So that one looks fascinating to me. And is where was that one again? Anything for fame? Uh, that is on Paramount Plus and then it's free on the NFB on the 8th of November. All right. Excellent. Uh you've got all of these and more over on whatshesaidtalk.com. Um I know it's early, but when are you coming in with some Christmas movies for us? Oh, please. <laughs> Do you know what's happening in Toronto now? They're having festival after festival after festival. I can't keep up. Nobody can keep up. They've all moved to the fall for some crazy reason. And we're not happy, me or the publicists. (laughs) But anyway, so there's a lot of festivals. I'll make mention of them. All right. Excellent. Well, we'll see you next week, Anne. And thanks for joining us. All righty. More with Candace Sampson and What She Said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. At least I'm gonna say that I tried. What's the 
deception hurt my pride. I really can't stay. Baby, don't hold out. Ah, but it's cold outside. As the cold weather approaches, we're reminded of the importance of staying warm and cozy. But for many, a winter coat is not just a luxury, it's a necessity. That's why I'm thrilled to have Jordan Britton, the founder of Warm Social Coats, back on the show today. Jordan's company is doing incredible work to ensure that everyone has access to warm clothing, no matter their financial situation. Welcome back to the show, Jordan. Thanks, Candace. Super happy to be here and was thrilled when he sent that email to connect again. Uh, can you? Uh, well, I, I just love the company. I love everything about it. I love the give back portion. And you're just producing a really high quality item. So can you remind listeners about the mission of Warm Social Coats and what compelled you to start the company? Yeah. So basically, just removing the barriers that get in the way of people having adequate warm winter wear. We know how cold our country gets. We know that it is a necessity. You can't just skirt by without one, especially in the, some of those minus 30, minus 40 plunges. And so my background was working in social work and seeing that there was families that just don't simply have enough to make the ends meet to get something reliable and warm to get them through the season. So when I saw that, I saw that as a problem, but I, I view it as a very solvable problem. And so that was the genesis of the company. And that's how I'm approaching the problem. So last year, you shared with us then the one for you, one for someone in need model that Warm Social Coats operates on. So can you tell us more about how this works and the impact it's had so far? Yeah, so it's just very simple and following some of the model of some other companies that are also doing really good things like Tom's and Tentree and all. I think that the envelope is being pushed further on what's acceptable for you know, corporations and how they should conduct themselves. So that was exactly what we wanted to do was every time a coat is sold, it's matched equally in donation, not a worse coat, not a less warm coat, not a less quality coat, the exact same one, because that's what I envision is that every time somebody zips up a warm coat, they know that somebody else who wouldn't have the opportunity to have that coat is able to do the exact same thing because of that. So um, that's the model that we're creating. It's been you know, an awesome run so far. Um, a lot of our impact has been in our own province. And now we want to look outside. We want to get some of our coats to, because this is a Canada-wide problem, right? So this is something where we want to eventually address this in our country in entirety. And I have a vision and I believe in it. So um, it's just about getting, working hard and making that, or seeing that through really. And last year was your first year. What does this year look like in terms of growth for you and getting more coats into the hands of people who need them? So it starts with the expansion of not just being um, winter coats and, and exclusively that, but basically offering, you know, merino wool t-shirts and polar fleece hoodies, warm toques, stuff like that, where each purchase then contributes to providing more coats because Again, doing research and, and how this all started is that oftentimes when you pay money for a higher end brand, um, people think that, you know, all of that, like basically the, the, the margin on those brands, you end up paying so much for markup just for somebody to have an established brand essentially. So instead of just having all of that high markup, we wanted to use that by giving something super quality, something that somebody will really enjoy and using that extra markup to actually give back to the community and, and solve a real problem. And I think that that's what's been 
um, really good to see in this past year is the growth of our company and in turn, then the growth of how many people were able to positively affect with this. Uh, you're aiming for 10 times the contribution this year? Yep. Because as a startup, our contribution was small over this past winter. And so like 10x is, it might sound crazy, but, you know, getting from zero to 100 was its own battle. And now we're ready to go. We just need to scale. Like we want to um, always be growing because as a small business um, that's in the process of scaling, we want our influence to be Canada wide. We love this country. Uh, I love this country. And I feel like, you know, that's where we want to make this a nationwide thing. And I, I really do believe it's going to happen. And so I'm purposely putting this on well ahead of the holidays, because I really want people to think about where they're spending their money this year, and how they can make an impact with their gifts, not just to the people they love, but to others. So if people want to buy a coat or support your mission in some way, um, how can they get involved? Even if you don't want anything at this moment, or it's just not in your your budget plans, that's okay. Like just at the stage of growth that we're at right now, anything on social media helps um, any sort of support that you can help. You know, maybe if that message isn't for you right now, maybe sharing it to somebody who it is right for. Um, and so, yeah, like we have tons of stuff and that's our main thing too, is that we want to be providing for people who might not be able to provide for themselves, but also the stuff that you're going to get is going to be awesome. Like though, what's amazing is that we have people who have ordered through us and then they just want to order more stuff because they genuinely really love their stuff. And so those two things um, for me are super important. And it's honestly, it's so fulfilling to see that kind of, uh, you know, this happen for us. Well, I have my warm social coat. And if anybody wants to see it, they can head over to my Instagram and check it out. Uh, but Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today and for the incredible work you're doing. Uh, I am so excited to see you reach your goal this winter and continue to make a difference in the lives of those in need. I really appreciate it, Candice. Yeah, you've been a big supporter. It was amazing that we were able to connect um, last year too. And you know, I view the company as that size then, and we might only be this, but maybe the next time that we connect, we have a lot more to say and do. So I really appreciate you reaching out. All right. Incredible. Thank you, Jordan. All right. Cold. Cold. partnership with CalTire, we're diving into a topic that's top of mind for many Canadians as we transition from fall to winter, ensuring our vehicles are winter ready. With the colder months just around the corner, it's essential to be prepared, especially when it comes to our cars. Joining me today is a familiar face, Tiffany Moyer, a specialist from CalTire, who's here to share some invaluable tips to ensure our cars are equipped for the season and we're safe on the roads. Welcome back, Tiffany. Thanks for having me again. So what are the immediate steps drivers should take to ensure their vehicles are prepared for what's to come? Yeah, so as we're starting to put our patio furniture away, pulling out our jackets and boots, we also want to be making sure that our vehicles are ready for winter. 
we know that vehicles these days are equipped with so many fantastic safety features, but if those tires that are touching the road don't have good tread or running at the proper pressure or your vehicle doesn't have a good overall health, it doesn't allow those safety systems to operate at 100%. And we've talked about the 7C switch a lot when it comes to winter uh, winter driving, but it's always good to revisit it. And I feel too a little bit because people might think if they put their winter tires on too early, uh, it's not good for your tires or the car either. So can you explain what the 7C switch is? So every year we see people waiting for snowfall until they're ready to switch those tires out. But we want to make sure that people are really aware at seven degrees is when those winter tires will start to outperform your all seasons. The reason being is those winter tires are made up of more of a natural rubber compound that allows them to stay flexible when your temperatures start to drop. We've talked about the... The hockey puck analogy being in Canada and those all seasons that have more synthetic rubber compound, they start to harden a lot faster on you and they're not flexible in gripping the road like they should. And I think something too that is really worth revisiting and I think we should educate people every year on this is that there is a very big difference between winter tires and all season tires. So can you explain the difference? To help drivers better understand the difference between an all-season tire is really that we should put it out there that in Canada, it's more of a three-season tire. They're going to do great in the spring, summer, and early fall for you, but they're not equipped to handle Canada's fourth season, which is winter. So they really should be considered that three-season tire. And you don't necessarily have to get winter tires in some areas of Canada, right? There is another option. There is. You can run something that they call an all-weather tire, which meets all the requirements for a winter tire. It's stamped the same way a winter tire is with that tri-peak mountain snowflake, and that compound will stay flexible as that temperature starts to drop. The one thing to keep in mind is that an all-weather or winter tire is not the same as a tire that has M and S stamped on the sidewall, which stands for mud and snow. A mud and snow tire, it means that there is a 30% void of tread to gap ratio. So that tire does a good job of expelling slush and snow, but that compound still starts to harden at that seven degree mark. Okay, so let's just go back and just clarify this for one second. So some tires will have a three peak mountain snowflake symbol, and some will have an MS symbol, right? Yes. Okay, and we're looking for what? which one? We For your winter tire, for that tire that's going to stay flexible, grip the road and give you that improved handling, you want the Tri-Peak Mountain Snowflake, which is also called a severe service emblem. All right, excellent. So let's talk about windshield wipers. I know where your, your tires, but wipers are just as important and something that a lot of people are going to overlook, I think. Um, so how do how does the summer affect our wipers and what sh- signs should we be looking for to know it's time to replace them? So if you're starting to see some streaking, hearing some of those squeaks or those stutterings as it's gliding across your windshield, and it's not clearing your windshield or it starts to feel like it's leaving a film, you're going to be due to replace your wiper blades. 
there's a couple of reasons why it's it's a really thin rubber barrier that's touching your windshield and trying to get rid of everything that's uh, obstructing your view. And after trying to get bugs off your windshield all summer and being exposed to those high heats and the UV rays on your windshield all summer, you want a nice fresh rubber compound that's going to be able to flex and grip your windshield as it moves across it. And I have just a small story to share because, you know, wipers are one of those things that I ignored. I thought, oh, it's doing its job. It's fine. But it's always going to break down on you in the worst possible moment, which has happened to me. Uh, I didn't replace my wiper in the middle of a storm. Uh, I lost one. Uh, not exactly the best thing to happen. So you do want to pay attention to what your wipers are doing for sure. Uh, and wait, let's talk about brakes. Obviously, vitally, vitally important. So how often should drivers get their brakes checked, um, especially as we're heading into winter? So if the wheels are coming off your vehicle, it's a great idea to just have your service provider say, hey, can you take a look at my brakes while you've got my wheels off? It never hurts to have them inspected. Uh, if you are someone that's running one set of tires, definitely a, at least a yearly inspection or when you're having your tires rotated, get those brakes checked as well. And I'm assuming, I know Cal Tire does this, of course, but I'm assuming just for everybody's safety, you can do this pretty much anywhere is have people check the brakes, right? Yeah, absolutely. And they can take a look at the pad life. Generally, brand new pads will have about 10 millimeters and then wear from there. And you also want to make sure that they ha are well lubricated and not rusty to make sure they're working properly and they're not sticking. All right. So as important as it is to get our cars ready, it's also important to get ourselves ready. So any tips for drivers uh, to sort of pull in those habits that may be a little rusty? Yeah. If Make sure you're giving yourself some extra time. Make sure your vehicle's in good condition for you. Um, if you are someone that runs that tire year-round and you set your tire pressures when it was 30 degrees out, it's a great idea to stop in, have your tire pressures checked now that that temperature has started to drop uh, because that will affect the tire in the air pressure in your tire. And don't forget about that space, right? Give yourself lots and lots of space. Did you say that? Yes. I can't remember, but you did. Yeah, the space is important. I mean, every winter that first storm hits and we see it time and time again, people just hitting people ahead of them because they have not given themselves enough space to stop. So yeah. really important to remember. It's better for the health of your vehicle too. You have time to react to those potholes that are on the road and you're not potentially damaging your alignment or suspension as well. It Not so much just avoiding collisions, but also it's better for the overall safety and health of your vehicle. And I don't want to freak people out before we end this, but you know, uh, you were we were talking before we started recording and you said that you had 40 uh, appointments uh, tomorrow to deal with. So now is the time. Um, when should people be booking these these visits? So where we are, we're starting to see lows of that four degrees right now, highs of 10, uh, especially if you're somebody that maybe works from home or only drives in and around the city, you could start installing your tires now. It's not going to damage them. Uh, and once you know your schedule, it's always best to call your local shop, whoever you get in, book your appointment ahead of time. Because we all know that once that snow flies, you're going to be waiting for two to three weeks to get in for that appointment. And it's better to already have that set, even if it's not for a month from now. Absolutely. Don't wait for the snow, right? 
Correct. Be proactive. Don't be surprised. All right. Excellent. Tiffany, thank you again for joining me with this very timely reminder. Uh, Every year, it's important to just let people know uh, we get a little rusty over the summer and we get a little complacent, I think. So good, good reminder. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Where can people find out more and, you know, book their appointment with Caltire? So you can either go online to caltire.com. You can book all your services there or call into the closest location. We'd be glad to help you out over the phone. If you're not sure if your winter tires are good for another season, stop in and see us. We can come right out into the parking lot and let you know if you're safe or if you're potentially looking at uh, purchasing a new set of tires. All right. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me. Have a good day. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. This next interview, I'm joined by Sharon DeVellis, a woman who believes that the least interesting thing about her is what she does. What she does believe, though, is in the importance of nurturing our physical, mental, and emotional well-being daily and routinely, and gives different health trends a try to assess if they really work. Today, Sharon joins me to discuss cold water plunges, Wim Hof breathing, and floating. So let's find out if these practices are worth incorporating into our routines. Welcome back to What She Said, Sharon. It's good to see you again, Candice. So let's start with cold water plunges because this is something that I have seen. I've seen people, you know, praise the results. I cannot get into cold water. (laughs) So tell me about the practice. What does it involve? And and what are the benefits that it's supposed to offer? So yeah, the mental barrier is a huge one. I'm not a cold person. I'm a hot person. I love hot showers. So um, this all began for me when I read the book Breath by James Nestor, which was all about breathing and how it really actually affects our physical health. Like we know it's good for meditation. But you know, breathing through our nose is important. Um, we're a bunch of mouth breathers. And at the end of it, it had different breathing that you could do. And one of them was Wim Hof breathing. So I went to Google and Googled Wim Hof. And so he's known as the Iceman. And he's come up with this way of breathing um, and along with cold water exposure. So it doesn't necessarily need to be a plunge. Um, And the two of them together and separately have anti-inflammatory, it helps your body get rid of inflammation, uh, reduces stress, cold water exposure can reduce muscle soreness, it can help you sleep better, it builds up your immunity. So I thought I'd give it a go. And the first time I did it, I think I did the big mistake that a lot of people do, which was... I went into Lake Ontario and it was three degrees. It was freezing and I tried to stay as long as possible. So if you're going to do it, do not do it that way. Um, What I ended up doing was reading more about Wim Hof. I got his book and I did his 10-week course. And what you want to do is slowly immerse yourself into it. So that means beginning with cold showers, 
That's great. Everyone can do that. It's free. And you take your regular shower and then you turn it to cold. It doesn't even have to be all the way cold. Right. It's 20 seconds. And then slowly build up over time. Like you wouldn't go to the gym one day and be like, I'm going to deadlift 500 pounds. Yet right. here we are being like, oh, I'm just going to like dive into this freezing cold lake. Um, I did get an ice plunge tub which I use like throughout the spring and fall. And then in the summer and winter, I've been doing cold showers. And so are you doing this daily? Have you maintained this consistently since you started? So completely honest, when I first did the Wim Hof course, I did it daily for 10 weeks. Um, and then throughout the summer, because we're back and forth going up north to our place and stuff, I'm not as much. And then now I'm back into it again, because I'm back into a regular routine not doing it, I didn't notice it had a huge effect on my sleep. And interestingly enough, when you prior to this interview, I went to look up Wim Hof breathing, not realizing it was connected to the cold plunges. Yes. So do you ever practice the breathing without the cold plunge? Because I just kind of tried it off a YouTube video. And it was I have to say very relaxing. Yeah, I do it every single day. It takes me about 12 minutes. It's part of my morning routine. And if I do miss a day for whatever reason, I completely notice it. I notice it in my stress levels and I notice it in my sleep. It's such an easy thing to do and to incorporate into your daily life. All right. Well, we only have a couple of minutes left. And I want to talk about this last one because it's the most recent one you've tried, a growing trend, floating. So, so tell me about that. I love that. It's like, it is a growing trend to speak in the mainstream, but people have been doing like trips to the Dead Sea for thousands of years right floating there so now it's just becoming mainstream um floating quickly it's sensory deprivation you are in a tank with about 10 inches of water lots of epsom salts in it so you're very buoyant there is no light the temperature of the water is your body temperature so eventually you're kind of like where does my body end and the water begin i did it for 90 minutes i was very scared because i can't even read for 90 minutes how i'm going to be in my head for 90 minutes it went by incredibly quick you're kind of in that half awake half asleep dream state State. It's called theta brain waves. Very good for creativity. Um, also helps to reduce stress. I felt afterwards like I had had an hour long massage because you're so relaxed. Your muscles are just like, you're just floating. So it's very loosey goosey after you leave. Um, your body absorbs magnesium the best through your right. skin. So if you have a magnesium deficiency like I did, it's a great way to get your magnesium. And is, so is I've seen this similar at, you know, like Nordic Spa, they have a great big Kala pool. But this one you're talking about, are you in a tank alone? You're in a tank alone. It's a cabin. But if you're claustrophobic, it's very big. It's like about the size of a four person sauna, you have a six feet above your head. And the place I was at, they have a blue light that you can keep on the entire life. So you're not in the dark. In the dark, right. That would be my fear. It would be the claustrophobia would get to me. Yes. Uh, so Sharon, thank you so much for joining me to just sort of shed a light on these. Uh, you know, we only have six minutes for this interview. So you're going to write a post and share it on what she said talk.com that goes a little deeper into these and shares some really great resources and books for people. Uh, because heaven knows we need to bring our stress levels down. Way down. Way. Way down. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sharon. Have a good day.
That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.